And that was Bruce Coburn with the song Where the Death Squad Lives. That comes from the album Big Circumstance. Greetings and welcome to Howie 2020. This is an independent podcast on progressive politics inspired by Bernie Sanders, Howie Hawkins, Angela Walker, progressive and radical activism, and the Green Party. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, PAC, or political organization. You can follow me on Twitter at Howie underscore 2020. You can also find out more and all the back episodes of Howie 2020 and Bernie 2020 at Bernie-2020.com. You can also uh, find a link there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. We started out with the song from Bruce Coburn, Where the Death Squad Lives, because we're going to have a couple stories here getting us started about the murder of Michael Reinol, who was murdered Death Squad style by our quote-unquote law enforcement organizations. First up, this piece was published on October 1st by Nathan J. Robinson, and I think that's where we'll find the most significant differences between the two stories is this one was published on October 1st. The more recent one was published in the last couple of days. A moment in the first presidential debate that passed by quickly deserves substantially more attention. Around halfway through, both Donald Trump and Chris Wallace challenged Joe Biden to say that he would be harsh on protesters, pressing him on whether he would have sent the National Guard to Portland during the, quote, riots there, and implying that this would be the reasonable thing to do, rather than a massively unhelpful overreaction. As evidence that, unlike Biden, he would be a law and order president, Trump interjected the following, quote, I sent in the U.S. Marshals to get the killer of a young man in the middle of the street, and they shot him. For three days, Portland didn't do anything. I sent in the U.S. Marshals. They took care of business. Trump is referring to the killing of Michael Reinol, a 48-year-old Antifa supporter and father of two who lived in Washington State. On August 29th, Reinol fatally shot Aaron Danielson an armed member of the right-wing Patriots Prayer Group. A warrant was issued for Reinol's arrest. Reinol said in an interview that he feared being killed if he came into the hands of police. Hours after the interview was released, that is exactly what happened. Federal agents and local law enforcement approached his apartment building and shot Reinol dead. President Trump described the killings as, quote, retribution, saying, this guy was a violent criminal. That's the way it has to be. Before Reinold's killing, Trump had tweeted, Why aren't the Portland police arresting the cold-blooded killer of Aaron J. Danielson? Do your job and do it fast. Everybody knows who this thug is. No wonder Portland is going to hell. At the debate, Trump left no doubt about his position. He was pleased that his agents had killed Reinold not because they had acted in self-defense, but because Reinol was a, quote, killer, and the U.S. Marshals, quote, took care of business. 
a number of facts about the Reinold case remain unclear. First, there's the original shooting. Reinold told Weiss that he had fired the shot, but did so in self-defense. It is unclear exactly what happened. We do know the victim was armed with both a gun and bear spray. If Reinald had been brought to trial instead of killed, a prosecutor would have had to lay out evidence against him, and Reinald would have been able to present his self-defense argument. As it is, all we know is that there were two men with guns, and one of them shot the other. Reinald said that after the shooting, right-wing activists were making, quote, posts of the hunt and saying the deer are going to feel lucky this year because it's open season on Michael right now. The actual way he died, though, is still uncertain. One eyewitness, an ordained minister who lived in Reinald's apartment building, said that Reinald, quote, was clutching a cell phone and eating a gummy worm as he walked to his car, when officers approached and opened fire without warning. The witness now says he, quote, fears reprisals from far-right groups and police for describing what he saw. But other witness accounts vary. Some said that Reinald fired at the officers. The police statement issued after the shooting did not allege that Reinhold fired at them, however. A representative of the Thurston County Sheriff's Office said that Reinhold, quote, had exited an apartment and got into a vehicle, and that as they attempted to apprehend him, there was gunfire. But police did not say who created this gunfire, and in fact the sheriff's representative admitted that while Reinhold was found to be armed, quote, we are not able to confirm at this time if he fired shots. The Washington Post reported that at least four members of the task force fired at the suspect in a very brief amount of time, and that when Reinhold fled, officers gave chase and then fired at him again. Police, surprise, insist they have no footage that could resolve the question one way or the other. The killing of Reinhold and Trump's public celebration of it is extremely troubling. Reinhold had been charged with a crime, but not convicted. To kill a criminal suspect is the gravest possible violation of the basic rights of due process. The fact that this involved a federal task force and that Trump had branded Reinhold a thug before he had been convicted raises the possibility that offers made little serious attempt to arrest Reinhold. Trump said he sent them directly to, quote, take care of business, and they may well have known at the time what he said publicly afterward, that as far as Trump was concerned, Reinhold was better off dead and his killing was an act of righteous retribution. At the trial, not only would Reinhold have been entitled to present his self-defense argument, but the conduct of the Trump supporters at the protest would have been put on full display. It is entirely possible, given that the man Reinhold shot was armed and both men were white, that Reinhold would have been exonerated and the Trump administration's effort to paint Antifa as the aggressors would have been somewhat undermined. Or perhaps he would have been convicted and sentenced. The dead tell no tales, though, and now Reinhold will not be tried in a court of law and have a chance to present evidence for his side of the story. I am surprised this has not gotten more attention because the implications of it are very serious. Bragging about killing criminal suspects without trial is extreme, even for Trump, 
and reminds me of Rodrigo Duterte's open endorsement of state murder in the Philippines by calling this killing retribution and stamping his approval on it without making any arguments that it was done in self-defense. Trump has signaled that he supports an Antifa exception to the law and lets every law enforcement officer know that if they killed the kind of people that Trump would like to see disposed of, he will be pleased and support them. Nothing could be more dangerous for the left than to have the president suggest killing leftist protesters for retribution is acceptable. Now, in some ways, what happened to Reinhold is just a further extension of what happens to black criminal suspects all the time in this country. Police have killed 165 black people this year already, several every week. Nor is Reinhold the only activist who feared for his life. In Ferguson, activists have raised the alarm about a concerning number of people tied to protests who have died, though the causes of their deaths remains uncertain. The routineness of police violence is, of course, one of the central motivating concerns of the very protests that Reinhold was involved with, and so his death should not distract from the deaths of others. What makes this case worth paying particular attention to is the lack of pretense. Most of the time, law enforcement officers who kill suspects will claim that they felt fear for their lives or that the victim's death was either accident or suicide. But in this case, they didn't bother, and that's because of the direct involvement of the president himself. We have reached a point where the president can boast about ordering the murder of an American citizen on American soil on live television, and he doesn't even get a follow-up question about it. I remember when Barack Obama claimed the power to assassinate citizens around the world. It was at the very least the subject of public controversy, even if too many Democrats declined to oppose Obama over, quote, targeted killing. Donald Trump famously once bragged that he could shoot a man on Fifth Avenue and not lose voters. Well, I think we can also conclude that he can order an extrajudicial assassination on U.S. soil and it wouldn't even be a major national news story. If Trump realizes that his agents can get away with assassinating criminal suspects in the streets without a shred of pretense, we should be extremely frightened of what a second term, which Trump has promised to use to go after anarchists and Antifa members and critical race theorists, will bring. If the minister who witnessed Reinhold's killing is describing it accurately, the implications are chilling. I do not claim to know the facts of what happened in Portland, or even exactly what happened to Reinhold, but having a president boasting of the violent retribution his marshals wrought, and having a country that doesn't seem to care, gives me sleepless nights. And next up on the same topic is a piece written by Brian Denson for ProPublica and Conrad Wilson for Oregon Public Broadcasting. This is published at ProPublica.org. New eyewitness accounts. Feds didn't identify themselves before opening fire on Portland Antifa suspect. Late summer sunshine bathed a working-class neighborhood in suburban Olympia, Washington, on the first Thursday afternoon in September, as Michael Forrest Reinol left the Tanglewild Terrace townhomes climbed behind the wheel of a silver Volkswagen station wagon 
and tossed a couple of travel bags onto the passenger seat. It was Reinhold's fifth day on the run. Hours earlier, prosecutors in Portland, Oregon, had charged the self-described anti-fascism activist with second-degree murder in the August 29 shooting death of Patriot Prayer supporter Aaron J. Danielson, and a team of federal fugitive hunters armed with an arrest warrant gathered to plan a takedown at the nearby Lacey Police Department. At about 6.40 p.m., two silver SUVs gunned towards Reinhold, tires squealing as they skidded to a stop in front of his VW, pinning his car in. Deputized U.S. Marshals burst from the vehicles aiming military rifles at him. The official line is that Reinhold jumped out of his car, his hand on the 380 caliber pistol in his pocket, defying a shouted command, Stop! Police! What happened next remains unclear, even among law enforcement officials who participated. One deputy U.S. Marshal told investigators with the Thurston County Sheriff's Office that Reinhold pointed a gun at him. Another deputy marshal told detectives that Reinhold had his hand on his pistol and was in the process of pulling the gun out of his pocket when officers fired. The gun was in Reinhold's right front pants pocket when detectives recovered it. Civilian eyewitnesses interviewed by Oregon Public Broadcasting and ProPublica and other public statements offer similarly inconsistent and sometimes conflicting recollections. They agree that they heard no warning from federal agents and saw no flashing lights that indicated the arrival of law enforcement. Just a fusillade that one neighbor likened to a scene out of the video game Call of Duty. Reinol, age 48, died in the street from gunshot wounds to his head and torso. The shots were fired by two Pierce County Sheriff deputies, a Lakewood police officer, and a Washington State Department of Corrections employee, all deputized by the U.S. Marshals Service and serving on a Tacoma-based fugitive task force, a common and standard procedure among local federal partnerships. A U.S. Marshal was also part of the team, but did not fire. Investigators haven't said how many shots the officers aimed at Reinhold, but there were so many that the little yellow evidence markers used to identify and protect spent shell casings resembled a miniature tent village. It might never be possible to determine exactly what happened in the estimated 15 seconds of gunfire that left Reinhold dead, because the men who shot him were not wearing body cameras. The surrounding buildings lacked security cameras, and three people who witnessed critical segments of the shooting have not been interviewed by police. That uncertainty matters. The factors that led to fatal police shootings are often second-guessed, especially in cases where there's no clear-cut documented reason for lethal force, and questions about police accountability drove this summer of racial justice protests across the United States, including the dueling political rallies at which Danielson was killed. Reinhold's ensuing death, justified or not, also raises questions about President Donald Trump's tendency to talk about law enforcement as a political tool and to portray police as responding to his agenda rather than doing their jobs independent of politics. 
An hour before Reinhold died, the president called on Portland police to arrest the, quote, cold-blooded killer of Jay Danielson. Do your job and do it fast, he tweeted. More than a week later, the president described Reinhold's killing as retribution. At the end of September, in his first debate with former President Joe Biden, Trump claimed erroneously, I sent in the U.S. Marshals, they took care of business. A spokesman for the Marshals Service noted that the president had done nothing of the kind, and a statement issued by the service said that the fugitive task force had attempted to, quote, peacefully arrest Reinhold. Portland's protests have frequently ended in violence and property destruction in the weeks since May 25, when a Minneapolis police officer killed George Floyd, an unarmed black man, and they now serve as a barometer for America's political divide. Thousands of Black Lives Matter protesters have taken to the streets almost nightly since then, chanting for more police accountability and leaving parts of downtown Portland covered in graffiti and marked by boarded-up doors and windows. Right-wing counter-protesters, angered by the vandalism and strongly supportive of the police, have often clashed with the most extreme activists on the left. Those street brawls date back to Trump's 2016 election. Small but vocal groups on both sides have come to the protest to mix it up with their opponents, often bringing weapons. For weeks this summer, tensions grew, first when the federal law enforcement officers arrived to protect the downtown federal courthouse and used more force and more quickly than city police officers had. Then, on August 29, a collection of flag-waving Trump supporters decided to convoy through the heart of the famously liberal city. Reinhold shot Danielson near the end of that Saturday of street skirmishes between anti-fascists and right-wingers. Danielson, a white man, was a Portland businessman and stalwart of the far-right political group Patriot Prayer, which has engaged in violence and has sometimes attracted white supremacists. Reinhold, another white man, described himself as 100% anti-fascist, and he had shown up to many rallies over the summer to, as he put it, provide security to Black Lives Matter demonstrators. He believed fringe combatants in America's left-right divide were headed for civil war. He was really on edge, Devin Reinhold, the dead man's high school-aged son, told OPB and ProPublica. Still, it remains unclear why Reinhold shot Danielson. In an interview aired on Vice the day he died, Reinhold said he had acted to protect, quote, a friend of mine of color, who Reinhold claimed would have been killed had he not fired. That purported friend, according to investigators, denied knowing Reinhold and said he did not witness the shooting and had no idea it would happen. Prosecutors in Portland declined to indict the man for aiding or abetting the killing of Danielson, according to the court records obtained through a public records request. A security camera on a downtown Portland building captured video of Reinhold entering a nearby parking garage as Danielson and a friend walked by. That camera and videographers ubiquitous at the protests captured the moment in which Reinhold followed them into the street and fired two rounds from his pistol. One drilled through Danielson's chest. Danielson stumbled a few steps and collapsed. Devin Reinhold recalls that his father went on the run after the downtown shooting, determined to evade the authorities. 
He didn't plan on turning himself in at all, he said. Early on August 30, about five hours after Danielson's killing, several trucks drove past the Portland rental home that Reinholz shared with his son and middle school-aged daughter and opened fire, Devon said. I heard the gunshots, he said. The teenager said he heard three rounds fired at the dwelling but did not phone 911. Instead, he called his dad to report what happened. Michael Reinhold arrived and removed his daughter from the home, Devon said. Reporters who interviewed the teen at his doorstep saw what appeared to be bullet holes in the siding above his head. It remains un- unclear who fired the shots, whether the incident was connected to the shooting of Danielson or whether the teen simply mistook what he heard. Devin Reinhold said he spoke frequently with his dad in the days that followed. He was just planning on trying to be on the run, the younger Reinhold said. He didn't know where he was going. He had people helping him find the safe houses or whatever. That's why he was in Lacey. But I don't know anything about, like, those people or anything. Reinhold ended up 119 miles north of his Portland home. Investigators are still piecing together precisely how he got there. Multiple former and current law enforcement sources, not authorized to speak on the record, said that during the time between the killings, a source in contact with Reinhold passed information to law enforcement about his whereabouts. That eventually led them to the Tanglewild Terrace townhomes. One resident of the apartment complex, Nathaniel Dingus, has been of particular interest to law enforcement. After the shooting, he consulted with lawyers who issued a news release describing the shooting of Reinhold. The release noted that Dingus, who has so far declined to speak with investigators, claims that deputized U.S. Marshals did not attempt to apprehend Reinhold or issue any commands before shooting him. Further, the lawyers wrote, Dingus did not see a gun on Reinhold or see him make a move to reach for one. Dingus, through his attorneys declined multiple requests for an interview for this story. What Dingus's lawyers and his press release failed to mention is that Reinhold had been staying with Dingus prior to the shooting, although authorities don't know for how long. I don't know whether they are friends, said Lieutenant Ray Brady, who is overseeing the shooting investigation for the Thurston County Sheriff's Office and still hopes his team will get a chance to interview Dingus. That was the apartment where Mr. Reinhold was staying. Brady noted that Dingus's home was under surveillance by the Fugitive Task Force. He said sheriff's deputies searched the townhome after Reinhold's death. Officers were looking for anything related to the shooting in Portland, Brady said, and recovered a shotgun bag. On the day that he was confronted by the marshals, Reinhold packed his bags and, according to Dingus's account, was chewing a gummy worm as he made his way to his newly purchased VW. He stood six foot one, 185 pounds, with a weeks-old tattoo of a clenched fist on his neck, the emblem of the Black Lives Matter movement. It was a glorious bright day, and Garrett Lewis's eight-year-old son was pedaling his green BMX bike near the townhome complex's carport. Two men tinkered with cars nearby. Lewis's seven-year-old played with a friend on a patch of grass across the street. Within minutes... Reinhold was dead. Brady said that the frantic seconds after deputy marshals opened fire, Reinhold ran from his car and tried to take refuge behind a truck parked by his Volkswagen. As he lay dying on the ground, deputy marshals removed his hand from the pistol in his pocket, cuffed his wrists, 
and began CPR. Investigators recovered an AR-15-style 22 caliber rifle from his car along with a 380 caliber shell casing in the back seat. Deputies don't know, and may never know, if Reinhold fired at officers during their failed arrest operation. Supervisory Deputy U.S. Marshal Eric W. Wallstrom in Portland said the agency would neither comment on the shooting nor make available for interviews members of the Fugitive Task Force who took part in the incident. Deputized members of the task force, through their departments, similarly declined requests for interviews. Once the Sheriff's Office completes its investigation, the U.S. Marshals Service is expected to conduct a probe of its own through its National Shooting Review Board. The intention of that investigation is to ensure policies were followed and determine if there were lessons to be learned from the incident. Soon after Reinhold's death, eyewitnesses gave vivid, yet wildly varying accounts of the shooting. Garrett Lewis witnessed part of the shooting from outside his home and across the street from Dingus, and he has his own concerns about how officers behaved. Quote, There was no drop your weapon or freeze or police, no warning at all, he recalled. Lewis first thought the gunplay a brief volley, a few seconds of silence, then a sustained barrage, was the work of rival drug dealers. They just seemed like trouble, he said. Confused by the shooting, Lewis plucked his seven-year-old and a playmate off a nearby lawn and secured them in his home before dashing across the street to yank his eight-year-old off his bike and run him to safety. In the hours after the shooting, he wrote a two-page account of what he saw, but he has not yet spoken to Thurston County detectives. Investigators did interview his eight-year-old one day when they came to talk to Lewis, who wasn't home at the time. Another eyewitness offered a plausible explanation for why Reinhold might have pointed a handgun at the deputy marshals who had come to arrest him. The witness, unnamed in this story because she said she fears reprisals, was pedaling her exercise bike in her apartment when she heard the first shots. She unstrapped her feet and hurried to her picture window. She thought the shooters, buff white men dressed in khakis and ballistic vests and armed with rifles, looked less like law enforcement officers than members of a right-wing militia. Perhaps, she said, Reinhold might have mistaken the lawmen for the far-right vigilantes he feared were hunting for him. A moment after the shooting, Lewis, the father of two, stared across the street, still bathed in late summer sunshine and spotted Reinhold sprawled on the pavement near a cluster of mailboxes. He walked over to a police officer and introduced himself as an EMT, having served in that capacity in the Army, he said. I was going to see if there was any sort of aid that I could offer, he recalled. He just told me to shut the fuck up and go inside, and that it was a crime scene. A live stream Facebook video posted at 6.59 p.m. well after the law officer rebuffed Lewis's offer to render medical help shows a police officer in latex gloves performing chest compressions on Reinhold. President Trump celebrated Reinhold's death. This guy was a violent criminal and the U.S. Marshals killed him, he said, and I will tell you something. That's the way it has to be. There has to be retribution when you have a crime like this. But those sentiments rang sour with at least some of those closest to the shooting. 
Jay Danielson's friends, many of them Trump supporters, seethed when they learned that deputy marshals had killed Reinhold. They weren't looking for revenge, said Chandler Pappas, who was standing just behind his friend Danielson when Reinhold shot him. We wanted to see him face a jury. We wanted to see him suffer in prison, Pappas said. I wanted to see him answer for what he had done in a courtroom. And taking things even a step further, at his recent rally in North Carolina, Trump said this, quote, We sent in the U.S. Marshals, took 15 minutes, and it was over. They knew who he was, they didn't want to arrest him, and 15 minutes, that ended. And that kind of framing by the president is really the thing that makes this murder by police officer unique from most others. Most others, you don't get that type of framing of what happened and why it happened. Most of the time, you just simply get victim blaming and uh, indication that there was no choice, that the police had, had no other alternative. And this is what happened and usually with at least a uh, facade of remorse so moving on this next piece is written by Murtaza Hussein is published at The Intercept this July a group of over 150 artists and intellectuals issued a public letter in Harper's Magazine warning of what they called a growing atmosphere of coerced ideological conformity in the U.S., decrying a, quote, intolerance of opposing views and a vogue for public shaming and ostracism. The letter went on to add that, quote, restriction of debate, whether by a repressive government or an intolerant society, invariably hurts those who lack power and makes everyone less capable of democratic participation. One of the people who found themselves agreeing with these noble sentiments was Hamam Farah, a Palestinian-Canadian born in the Gaza Strip and raised between the United Arab Emirates and Canada. Farah spent years studying to become a licensed therapist in Toronto. The letter resonated with him because he has had very intimate experience with what it feels like to have one's free speech stifled. Attacks on his student pro-Palestinian activism have dogged Farah into adulthood, leading to recurring problems in his professional life. Quote, People are against cancel culture, and that's great. I'm also very against it, Farah said. But the most outrageous cases of people getting canceled are Palestinians, and those who stand in solidarity with us. When it comes to Palestinians standing up for our own rights, it is very difficult. Our free speech and freedom of expression has been attacked over and over. Amid the heated debate about free speech and censorship in the United States, the attacks against pro-Palestinian activism stand as a less remarked upon yet much more ruthless type of silencing. Few of the high-profile public intellectuals who have staked claims on the militant, militantly free speech side of the national debate 
have highlighted the incredible degree of suppression on speech supportive of Palestinian rights, particularly among ordinary people lacking access to elite platforms. It is a blind spot not lost on people like Farah, who have experienced blacklists and other forms of suppression firsthand. Quote, we have to be consistent, he said. We have to recognize that there is a clear double standard here and that it is not right. Firings and censorship relating to the Israel-Palestinian conflict long ago became common in both academia and politics. Just this month, a prominent academic, Valentina Azarova, had a job offer rescinded by the University of Toronto Faculty of Law after a major donor reportedly, quote, expressed concerns in private over Azarova's past work on the issue of Israel's human rights abuses in Palestine. Instead of taking up a defense of pro-Palestinian speech, the debate among journalists and intellectuals has mostly focused on their own discomfort as a class. Yet when it comes to this blind spot, the suppression of free speech targeting ordinary people has been fierce. Threats to immigration status, personal lives, careers, restrictions on foreign travel, and more. And unlike high-profile public figures able to call on magazines and newspapers for support when they feel silenced, Farah and other ordinary people targeted for their speech generally lack the ability to get their stories told. Lacking powerful platforms, they generally suffer their cancellations in mute anonymity. It's the first thing that comes up when you Google my name, the claim that I'm a terrorist supporter and an extremist, said A.H., a former activist working on Palestinian issues, who asked to remain anonymous for fear of suffering further consequences from speaking out. Speaking nervously by phone, A.H. told me she had been peripherally involved in pro-Palestinian activism, including commenting online and attending protests. Her relatively low-level involvement in the cause had still gotten her listed on Canary Mission, a site maintained by anonymous pro-Israel activists to track activist scholars and students supportive of Palestinian nationalism. Canary Mission is difficult to describe as anything other than a blacklist. As with Farah and others, A.H.'s profile on the site became the, became the most prominent online trace of her life. It had taken a toll not just on her career, but on her personal life and mental health. While some conservatives warn that a soft totalitarianism of progressive intolerance is growing in the U.S., when it comes to Israel-Palestine, a full-blown authoritarian coercion, like the blacklisting carried out by Canary Mission, is already well entrenched. Even after ceasing all of her pro-Palestinian activism, no longer so much as posting on social media about the Middle East conflict, for instance, A.H. remains haunted by her place on the list. Quote, I'm afraid to apply for a new job or even update my LinkedIn to show where I'm working now, she said. Sometimes I meet people, and then later, they just disappear. I'm always left wondering if it's because of what they saw when they searched my name online. Quote, 
At first, we kind of joked about being listed on Canary Mission as a good way to see who you can date or be friends with by describing them as having good politics, said Sumaya Awad, a former student activist at Columbia University. Awad, too, is listed on the Canary Mission site. She has also been involved in attempts to push back against it, including by helping found the website Against Canary Mission to raise awareness about the blacklist. Though the site's operators remain cloaked in anonymity, previous investigations into Canary Mission have pointed to a network of wealthy backers, including Israeli-American real estate investor Adam Milstein. Unlike the version of cancel culture presently being debated by U.S. intellectuals, the version supported by Canary Mission is more dangerous for influencing government actions. The site is believed to be employed by Israeli government authorities for intelligence-gathering purposes. Chillingly, for the question of free speech in America, the blacklist has reportedly also been used by the FBI to question individuals over their activism. The percolation of Canary Mission's content into official files is a massive cause of concern for those listed on its pages. Awad, a Palestinian from Jordan who lives in the U.S., worries that her immigration status puts her at particular risk from the type of blacklisting practiced by the site. Like many other Palestinians, being listed on the site can allow the Israeli military, which controls access to the Palestinian territories, to physically bar entry to the territories, even for innocuous reasons like family visits. In 2018, the Israeli daily newspaper Haaretz reported that Israeli authorities had internally cited Canary Mission profiles when making the decision to reject people for entry into Israel and, by extension, the Palestinian territories. In Awad's case, the concerns aren't only centered on Israeli-controlled borders. She has also become concerned about the potential impact of being blacklisted even on her own ongoing U.S. immigration process. For many people from minority backgrounds, already harshly scrutinized by law enforcement, or who don't have U.S. citizenship, inclusion on the blacklist can be a terrifying threat to their ability to live in the United States. Quote, Later on, when I was applying for immigration, I noticed that this page about me on Canary Mission, using these scare words that had nothing to do with me, like terrorist sympathizer, Hamas, and anti-Semitism, was the first thing that came up when you googled me, Awad said. I became really anxious about the blacklist after that and was scared if they'd reject my immigration status at some point without even telling me that that was the reason. Nothing on Awad's profile, which includes accusations of supporting the Palestinian-led movement to boycott, divest from, and sanction Israel, and, quote, demonizing Israel, indicates that she has ever engaged in illegal activity or even espoused views that could be considered violent, extremist, or anti-Semitic. To be removed from the list, individuals have to submit to a process with Canary Mission, whereby they write a testimonial apologizing for and disowning their previous activism. A number of these anonymous testimonies are included on the site on a page listing so-called ex-canaries. The Intercept viewed an email chain showing the negotiation of one such confessional with Canary Mission site administrators, in which the prospective ex-canary 
was forced to go back and delete several years of, quote, anti-Israel social media posts before submitting a genuflecting statement, disowning their former views and promising to never engage in pro-Palestinian activism again. Despite her concerns about being blacklisted, Awad has not taken up this unsettling offer. Her Canary Mission profile remains online. In addition to its effects on her, the fear of blacklisting, she said, has a significant impact in silencing the speech of those around her. The Canary Mission blacklist has been very powerful in silencing people and making them think free speech is not their right, she said. It instills a powerful sense of fear and paranoia. You're always left wondering if it's going to be the reason a job doesn't call back, a landlord declines you, or you have trouble going through airport security. Hamam Farah has faced years of difficulty thanks to his profile on Canary Mission's website. In large part, these problems have emerged because of a moral imperative he had felt to become an activist. During family visits to the occupied Palestinian territories in his youth, Farah developed an emotional attachment to the cause of Palestinian nationalism after witnessing the suffering of friends and family living under Israeli military occupation. Quote, My grandparents passed away in Gaza, and I was not able to go back and see them beforehand because of the Israeli blockade, Farah told me. That had a big impact on me emotionally as a young man, as did seeing how painful life was for people living in Palestine during family visits. Feeling a duty to speak out for them, he became involved in campus activism related to Israel-Palestine as a university student in Toronto. That was what landed him on the notorious Canary Mission blacklist. Farah is now listed on a site with a profile that attempts to connect him to terrorist groups, anti-Semitism, and violence, effectively, quote, canceling him and encouraging others to do so as well. The listing and other attacks on his character caused him serious problems as a student, but even after his graduation, it has continued to dog him in his professional career as a therapist. On numerous occasions, Farah has regularly has had regulatory applications related to his work delayed or prospective patients raise concerns about allegations made in his Canary Mission profile that he supported terrorism. This summer, the same week the now famous Harper's letter was issued, Farrow was informed that his application for licensing from the College of Registered Psychotherapy of Ontario had been held up after his presence on the Canary Mission blacklist was discovered during a Google search. After he reached out for support, an organization called the USA Palestine Mental Health Network issued a letter on Farrah's behalf stating that he had been, quote, the victim of malicious targeting by a political organization devoted to blacklisting persons with whom it does not agree. After that intervention, Farrah's licensing application was pushed through. As a well-connected activist able to draw on a network of supporters, he considers himself one of the lucky ones. But the anxiety that future problems related to his blacklisting may come up always lingers. There's a fear every time that there's a delay processing something, every time that something is flagged in connection to my name. This listing is the first thing that comes to my mind, he said. 
As someone who has personally felt the cold fear that comes from being targeted for their political speech, Farah said that he also feels genuine sympathy for those from different backgrounds, like the signatories of Harper's letter now expressing similar sentiments. Yet, as he noted, for years and up to the present day, he and others have been viciously cancelled without benefiting from an outcry by liberal civil society on their behalf. Farah added that the same sort of language many of the Harper's letter signatories objected to, like the invocation of safe spaces at the expense of freewheeling and open debate, have also been used against advocates of Palestine. There have been cases where arguments that were used to shut down right-wing campus speech were then used by pro-Israel advocates to shut down speech on Palestine, Farah told me, adding that pro-Israeli campus organizations had often claimed to university administrators that they, quote, felt unsafe due to the work of Palestinian activist organizations on campus. I agreed with the letter, Farah told me of the Harper's missive, and had this view for many years since I saw and experienced censorship and reprisal against Palestinian rights advocacy. He just wishes some of the intellectuals behind the free speech push might also take a look at the chilling threats to free speech that ordinary people, like him, have faced for years. Next up is a piece published at InTheseTimes.com. This is written by Crystal Tubles and Nick Tilson. This Indigenous Peoples Day, we don't need celebration. We need our land back. Today is Indigenous Peoples Day, a holiday that has taken place of Columbus Day in some parts of the United States as a response to the bloodshed that began when colonizers landed on our soil in 1492. On July 3, we, alongside 19 other land defenders, were arrested at Mount Rushmore as we protested President Trump's arrival on the sacred land for a campaigning event without the free, prior, and informed consent that is guaranteed in the 1851 and 1868 Fort Laramie Treaties and through the UN. Now we're facing a slew of charges for defending our own land, but our fight is just beginning. In this time of mass mobilization for racial and social justice, indigenous voices must be at the table of policy conversations. And in order to work towards repairing the harm that has been done to us for centuries, we need people fighting for change everywhere to center our demand for land back. A global movement demanding of the return of all public lands to indigenous people and to undo the many structures and systems that allowed them to be taken in the first place. The United States' deeply entrenched systems of corporatism, capitalism, imperialism, militarism, patriarchy, and white supremacy all began with the taking of indigenous lands. We have to go back to the starting point to undo the inequities and violence we're dealing with now, or we will just continue perpetuating colonization forever, no matter how hard we fight. While land back has been a rallying cry among indigenous people for generations, it has only recently started to catch attention outside of our own communities. Since this is a new idea for many, we want to be clear. When indigenous organizers say land back, we're not just saying all public lands need to return to indigenous stewardship. 
We're talking about reclaiming our identities and relationship with the land. This will take defunding the mechanisms that enforce white supremacy, police, military, border patrol, and ICE, and continue terrorizing our communities here and abroad. Dismantling white supremacy and the institutions that continue centering of voices willing to destroy everything around us. Returning all public lands back to indigenous hands and for us to reclaim rightful stewardship. And moving into a new era of indigenous consent when decisions are made that impact indigenous lives and land. Land back means dismantling the systems that made stealing our land possible in the first place. We mean reclaiming the culture, language, traditions, health, ceremony, language, and knowledge of the land that was stolen from us when we were forcefully removed and dwindled down to a fraction of our people by the violent forces of this so-called nation. Right now we're in a moment of upheaval across the country. People everywhere are rising up against police violence towards our black relatives, scrambling to address the racism that has made up the foundation of organizations of all kinds for years. We stand proudly with the movement for black lives as we mutually recognize that our liberation is bound up in each other's struggles. We're also facing a growing climate emergency as wildfires, hurricanes, unseasonably early snowstorms, and earthquakes are threatening the livelihoods of people around the world. Even as the U.S. government continues working in cahoots with oil companies to install pipelines through sacred land. Indigenous people and our lands have been used to further extractive relationships with the earth for years, which is why we are on the front line of the environmental justice and climate movements. We've been exploited and intentionally left out of decision-making processes. Now we are taking our power back. As we take action, we're also calling for a reckoning with the erasure of our history. We need our children to be provided with a culturally competent education that uplifts our values and provides the honest story that this nation was built by attempted genocide on top of stolen land by a stolen people. We don't want you to freeze and reflect quietly. We want you to feel our fight in your own bones. We want the truth of the United States history to run hot through your own blood. So you never lose sight of why decolonization is the only answer to our society's many sicknesses. At the end of the day, the Land Back Movement is about changing the power structures that created the possibility of our genocide and oppression in the first place. It is a notion that has lived in indigenous hearts and minds for generations. It's a fight that transcends age, race, borders, ability, and gender. It's the only way that we will undo the forces that keep all of us down. To create a world where we can truly live freely and without fear, we must all decolonize our minds, lives, and movements, starting today. And this next piece is by Nina Feldman of Kaiser Health News and is published at popularresistance.org. When coronavirus arrived in Philadelphia in March, Dr. Ayla Stanford hunkered down at home with her husband and kids. A pediatric surgeon with a private practice, 
She has staff privileges at a few suburban Philadelphia hospitals. For weeks, most of her usual procedures and patient visits were canceled. So she found herself, like a lot of people, spending the days in her pajamas glued to the TV. And then at the beginning of April, she started seeing media reports indicating that black people were contracting the coronavirus and dying from COVID-19 at greater rates than other demographic groups. It just hit me like, what's going on, said Stanford. At the same time, she started hearing from black friends who couldn't get tested because they didn't have a doctor's referral or didn't meet the testing criteria. In April, there were shortages of coronavirus tests in numerous locations across the country. But Stanford decided to call around to the hospitals where she works to learn more about why people were being turned away. One explanation she heard was that a doctor had to sign on to be the physician of record for anyone seeking a test. In a siloed health system, it could be complicated to sort out the logistics of who would communicate the test results to patients. In an effort to protect healthcare workers from being exposed to the virus, some test sites wouldn't let people without cars simply walk up to the test site. Stanford knew African Americans were less likely to have primary care physicians than white Americans, and more likely to rely on public transportation. She just couldn't square all that with the disproportionate infection rates for black people she was seeing on the news. All these reasons in my mind were barriers and excuses, she said. And in essence, I decided in that moment we were going to test the city of Philadelphia. Black Philadelphians contract the coronavirus at a rate nearly twice that of their white counterparts. They also are more likely to have severe cases of the virus. African Americans make up 44% of Philadelphians, but 55% of those hospitalized for COVID-19. Black Philadelphians are more likely to work jobs that they can't be performed at home, putting them at greater risk of exposure. In the city's jails, sanitation, and transportation departments, workers are predominantly black. And as the pandemic progressed, they contracted COVID-19 at high rates. The increased severity of illness among African Americans may also be due in part to underlying health conditions more prevalent among black people. But Stanford maintains that unequal access to health care is the greatest driver of the disparity. Quote, when an elderly funeral home director in West Philly tries to get tested and you turn him away because he doesn't have a prescription, that has nothing to do with his hypertension. That has everything to do with your implicit bias, she said, referring to an incident she encountered. Before April was over, Stanford sprang into action. Her mom rented a minivan to serve as a mobile clinic while Stanford started recruiting volunteers among the doctors, nurses, and medical students in her network. She got testing kits from the diagnostic and testing company LabCorp, where she had an account through her private practice. Fueled by Stanford's personal savings and donations collected through a GoFundMe campaign, the minivan posted up in church parking lots and opened tents on busy street corners in Philadelphia. It wasn't long before she was facing her own logistical barriers. LabCorp asked her how she wanted to handle uninsured patients whose tests it processed. Quote, 
I said for every person that does not have insurance, you're going to bill me and I'm going to figure out how to pay for it later, said Stanford. But I can't have someone die for a test that costs $200. Philadelphians live streamed themselves on social media while they got tested and word spread. By May, it wasn't unusual for the Black Doctors COVID-19 Consortium to test more than 350 people a day. Stanford brought the group under the umbrella of a nonprofit she had already operated that offers tutoring and mentorship to youth in under-resourced schools. Tavier Thomas found out about the group on Facebook in April. He works at a T-Mobile store and his co-workers had tested positive. Not long after, he started feeling a bit short of breath. Quote, I probably touch 100 phones a day, said Thomas. So I wanted to get tested, and I wanted to make sure the people testing me were black. Many black Americans seek out black providers because they've experienced cultural indifference or mistreatment in the health system. Thomas's preference is rooted in history, he said, pointing to times when white doctors and medical researchers have exploited black patients. In the 19th century American South, for example, white surgeon J. Marion Sims performed experimental gynecological treatments without anesthesia on enslaved black women. Perhaps the most notorious example began in the 1930s, when the United States government enrolled black men with syphilis in a study at Tuskegee Institute to see what would happen when the disease went untreated for years. The patients did not consent to the terms of the study and were not offered treatment, even when an effective one became widely available. Quote, They just watched them die of the disease, said Thomas, of the Tuskegee experiments. So to be truthful, when, like, new diseases drop, I'm a little weird about the mainstream testing me or sticking anything in me. In April, Thomas tested positive for the coronavirus but recovered quickly. He returned recently to be tested again by Stanford's group, even though the testing site that day was in a church parking lot in Darby, Pennsylvania, a solid 30-minute drive from where he lives. Thomas said the second test was just for safety because he lives with his grandfather and doesn't want to risk infecting him. He also brought along his brother, Mackenzie Johnson. Johnson lives in neighboring Delaware but said it was hard to get tested there without an appointment and without health insurance. It was his first time being swabbed. It's not as bad as I thought it was going to be, he joked afterward. You cry a little bit. They search in your soul a little bit. But nah, it's fine. Each time it offers tests, the consortium sets up what amounts to an outdoor mini-hospital complete with office supplies, printers, and shredders. When they do antibody tests, they need to power their centrifuges. Those costs, plus the lab processing fee of $225 per test and compensation for 15 to 30 staff members, amounts to roughly $25,000 per day by Stanford's estimate. Sometimes you get reimbursed, and sometimes you don't, she said. It's not an inexpensive operation at all. After its first few months, the consortium came to the attention of Philadelphia city leaders who gave the group about $1 million in funding. The group also attracted funding from foundations and individuals. The Regional Transportation Authority hired the group to test its frontline transit workers weekly. 
To date, the Black Doctors COVID-19 Consortium has tested more than 10,000 people, and Stanford is the doctor on record for each of them. She appreciates the financial support from the local government agencies, but still worries that City and Philadelphia's well-resourced hospital systems aren't being proactive enough on their own. In July, wait times for results from national commercial labs like LabCorp sometimes stretch past two weeks. The delays rendered the work of the consortium's testing sites essentially worthless, unless a person agreed to isolate completely while awaiting the results. Meanwhile, at the major Philadelphia-area hospitals, doctors could get results within hours using their in-house processing labs. Stanford called on the local health systems to share their testing technology with the surrounding community, but she said she was told it was logistically impossible. Unfortunately, the value put on some of our poorest areas is not demonstrated, Stanford said. It's not shown that those folks matter enough. That's my opinion. They matter to me. That's what keeps me going. Now Stanford is working with Philadelphia's health commissioner trying to create a rotating schedule wherein each of the city's health systems would offer free testing one day per week from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. The medical infrastructure she has set up, Stanford said, and its popularity in the black community, makes her group a likely candidate to help distribute a coronavirus vaccine when one becomes available. Representatives from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services visited one of her consortium's testing sites to evaluate the potential for the group to pivot to vaccinations. Overall, Stanford said she is happy to help out during the planning phases to make sure the most vulnerable Philadelphians can access the vaccine. However, she is distrustful of the federal oversight involved in vetting an eventual coronavirus vaccine. She said there are still too many unanswered questions about the process and too many other instances of the Trump administration putting political pressure on the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the Food and Drug Administration for her to commit now to doing actual vaccinations in Philadelphia's neighborhoods. When the time comes, we'll be ready, she said. But it's not today. And finally, here's a piece published at jacobinmag.com, written by Branko Marcetic. As 2020 hurdles to a close with Americans storming the voting booths, many of them desperately hoping to return the country to, quote, normal, events are already promising anything but. As grim previews of the future to come, we've already seen apocalyptic fires on the West Coast, a Republican who can sell Trumpism better than Trump, and a Supreme Court nominee who makes Antonin Scalia look like a moderate. And now we're getting a taste of how tech monopolies will use their power in the years ahead to censor reporting that clashes with their political interests. On Wednesday, the New York Post published a major story about the biden Burisma affair, a.k.a. Ukraine Great, Ukraine Gate, the still developing controversy over Hunter Biden's presence on the board of Ukrainian natural gas company Burisma at the time that his father, then vice president, spearheaded anti corruption efforts in the country and ultimately fired the prosecutor investigating the company. 
The Post published emails purportedly drawn from a copied computer hard drive that belonged to the younger Biden, allegedly showing a Burisma executive thanking him for introducing him to the then vice president and imploring Hunter to, quote, use your influence to convey a message, signal, etc., to stop what we consider to be politically motivated actions, meaning the one or more pretrial proceedings the Ukrainian government had launched against the company. The contents of the hard drive passed on to the Post by Trump ally Rudy Giuliani are clearly an attempt at one final desperate October surprise. Trump's shot at re-election certainly looks to have all but collapsed after an unhinged debate performance that was soon followed by the mass spread of coronavirus within the White House. He's in desperate need of something to turn around what seems to be shaping up, at least as far as the polls can be trusted, as a landslide defeat. While the emails, if authentic, are not great for Biden, they flatly contradict his implausible September 2019 claim that he has, quote, never spoken to my son about his overseas business dealings. They're far from a game changer. They mostly back up what basic common sense and closed-door testimony from Obama administration officials already told us, that Burisma's hiring of Hunter with his zero experience in either Ukraine or natural gas was an obvious attempt to curry favor with the U.S. government and that it undermined the Obama administration's anti-corruption messaging in the country. In fact, they shed absolutely no light on Trump's actual central and still unproven charge against Biden in the whole affair, that he fired the Ukrainian prosecutor to shield his son from prosecution. No, in many ways, the bigger story here is the response to the story. Because seemingly every major scandal damaging to Biden and therefore beneficial to Trump's re-election has, during this election, been simply labeled Russian disinformation and ruled out of bounds, from his sexual assault allegation to this matter. Social media companies quickly leapt into action to do what they could to make sure no one would get to even read the story and judge it for themselves. Shortly after the Post story went live, both Facebook and Twitter, two of the several tech giants that are now more integral to the news publishing business than ever, announced they were stepping in to prevent the story from spreading on their platforms. Facebook, wrote spokesperson Andrew Stone, was, quote, reducing its distribution on our platform until it could be fact-checked, while Twitter simply blocked users from posting the story at all, citing its, quote, distribution of hacked material policy. This rush to censorship is equal parts absurd and chilling. First, the absurd. As is often the case with heavy-handed attempts at censorship, it's not clear that the Burisma story would have been anything but a blip had the companies not tried to suppress it. Now, as Freedom of the Press Foundation's Trevor Tim puts it, quote, everyone will be talking about the New York Post story for a week instead of a day. The company's reasoning is equally silly. The policy Twitter initially cited to block sharing of the Post article states that, quote, you can't directly distribute hacked materials on the platform. But it's not clear that the material was hacked. 
While the Times has reported that U.S. intelligence analysts were warning in September that hacked Burisma emails would be leaked this month, according to the Post itself, the hard drive was copied by a computer repair store owner who was given the computer to fix and who handed it to Giuliani, who then passed it on to the paper. As for Facebook, it remains to be seen which of its third-party fact-checking partners will actually end up fact-checking the story. Will it be, for instance, the conservative outlet's Daily Caller or Weekly Standard, both of which have a history of weaving their right-wing politics into their fact-checking for the company, and the first of which is currently eagerly pushing stories about what's in the hard drive? Or will Facebook not task them with the politically sensitive story, tacitly admitting the partisan, Republican-friendly outlets aren't actually fit to judge the veracity of their stories. Now for the chilling. The tech giant's hostility to, quote, hacked material, mirrored by a similar rule put in place by both YouTube and Google, is enormously threatening to press freedom, given journalists' reliance on unauthorized disclosures of information and these tech monopolies' owned central role in the modern news publishing. As many pointed out after the news broke, if enforced consistently, this blanket policy would have hobbled countless important pieces of reporting, including the Panama Papers, the Vaza Jato stories about Brazil's prosecutors' politically motivated targeting of the country's most popular left-wing politician, the stream of reporting on U.S. atrocities and a host of other issues that have come from WikiLeaks disclosures and the revelations in 2016 that the DNC had put its thumb on the scales against Bernie Sanders' campaign that year. In fact, if Twitter consistently enforces this much broader line it's now taken, a prohibition on, quote, content obtained without authorization, that could be even more perilous for press freedom going forward. Publishing content without authorization is also known as journalism and would encompass anything from celebrated reportage like the Pentagon Papers or the Snowden documents to more recent leaks about Trump's monstrous treatment of immigrants at the border and his use of federal police against nonviolent protesters. Then there's the matter of double standards. It was only last month that the New York Times began its series of major exposés on Trump's finances based on tax returns that someone almost certainly broke a signed agreement ethical rule or even the law to get into the paper's hands, content obtained without authorization, in other words. Like Biden did for this Post report, Trump denied that particular story, calling it totally fake news made up fake. Meanwhile, as some conservatives correctly pointed out, the Post story's fate isn't one that appears to have befallen the bogus nonsense of the Steele report, or any of the seemingly endless stream of stories, some of them embarrassingly retracted, suggesting or pretty much outright alleging that Trump has actually been doing the bidding of Russian President Vladimir Putin. This double standard is particularly significant in light of big tech's clear partisan preference for Democrats. Tech companies' executives and employees tend to give more to Democrats are overwhelmingly backing Biden over Trump in the election, have close ties to his running mate, are starting partisan news sites to get them elected, and hire liberally from the ranks of Democratic offices. In fact, Facebook spokesperson Andrew Stone, who announced the company's censorship of the story, is a longtime Democratic operative 
having served as a spokesperson for the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and as press secretary for former Democratic Senator Barbara Boxer, once upon a time. It stretches credulity that all of that didn't play a role in this decision. Perhaps that won't bother anyone remotely left of center today. If it means the end of Trump's presidency, why should it matter? But there will be many more elections to come, and none of them, let's hope, will involve Trump versus Biden. Accepting Twitter and Facebook's crossing of this line today, censoring a story damaging to the political prospects of the presidential candidate they favor, means accepting it in any future election scenario, whether at the presidential level or lower. It's not hard, for instance, to imagine a Democratic primary contest one day between a conservative corporate bankrolled candidate and a progressive or left-wing insurgent who calls for the breakup or even nationalization of tech monopolies. If and when those companies use their power to stop the spread of a scandal damaging to the candidate they prefer in that contest, no one reading this will be cheering then. Twitter and Facebook's move here is the logical culmination of two Trump-era developments. Media guilt over its critical coverage of Hillary Clinton in 2016, which members of the press view as a prime reason for Trump's victory that year, and the nonstop calls from Democrats and some journalists for tech monopolies to become censors and block the spread of disinformation, quote, fake news, or other objectionable content, no matter how loosely defined. It's the Biden-Burisma scandal today, but if there's one thing we've learned over the past four years, it's that anything from environmentalism to protesting racism can be, quote, Russian disinformation if the right people want it to be. The Post story is by no means the first instance of tech censorship, but it is the most aggressive so far and the most brazenly political. And unless we rein in the power of these tech giants is going to end up being something even worse. Normal. And that'll wrap up this episode of Howie 2020. Remember, you can uh, follow me on Twitter at Howie underscore 2020. You can find all the back episodes and more at Bernie-2020.com. You can also listen to this podcast and all my other podcasts playing live 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. Here is Dan O'Farrell with the title track from his album, Your Facebook Feed Is Not the World. Thanks for listening. Facebook feed is not the world Your Facebook feed is not the world Even friended all the racists, the bigots and the chills So, your Facebook feed is not the world Your Facebook feed is not the world And you blocked four friends from school days for sharing Britain first And deleted Uncle Jerry for something even worse
first, now you sit in your old garden, preaching to the choir, and everyone agrees of all your thoughts on Lars Van Trier. But outside on the pavement, a fat man set up stall, and he's sharing UK pamphlets with a woman in his thrall. The news agent on the corners sold out of daily mails, though the front page says that immigrants should be harpooned like whales. The Muslim girl behind the counter takes the money for this bile from the queue of turning pensioners who cannot meet her eye. So be careful out there, you loving boys and girls. Your Facebook feed is not the world. Your iPhone screen is not your soul Your iPhone screen is not your soul And if Dorian Gray took selfies Would time still take its toll? Well, your iPhone screen is not your soul Your iPhone screen is not your soul And you've told the guys on Twitter About how you hate Nick Clegg And a celebrity retweeted you On Arthur Askey's legs And from where you're sitting It's a golden age for sure A paradise and pixels A utopia for all But somewhere in Malaysia A worker staggers home From 16 hours making smartphones That she will never own And you wanna smash the system Wanna subvert it from within But you need more lives in Candy Crush If you're ever gonna win And somehow that distracts you Like the people's heroin But it's the methadone of the masses It's not even OPM So be careful out there Or you loving boys and girls Your Facebook feed is not the world Thank you.